Welcome to Winds Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. My name's Abu. I'm Brett. And we're joined by a friend of the pod, Casey. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm really excited that you're here because today's episode is going to be a look back at season one. I'm definitely ready to talk about it. Yeah, of course. And that's that's why you're here. I mean, we're going to take a look back at season one at large. Brett, you and I have done all eight episodes. We've done hour-long deep dives into episodes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And we figured today would be a great opportunity to to take a look at the first season sort of big picture, cover the things we maybe didn't have time to cover in our deep dives. And of course, Casey, I'm excited that you're here because you're bringing two things to this podcast that we have sorely been missing. One, you haven't read the books or played the games, right? You're a show-only person? That's right. I just watched the Netflix show and that's it. Wow. So that's a perspective that Brett and I (laughs) cannot, (laughs) could (laughs) never have. Could never have. We're such huge fans of the show. And we came to the show with a totally different perspective than you did. And then two, this podcast has had a noticeable lack of female representation and female voices. It's just been me and Brett, two dudes, talking about a show that, Casey, as you pointed out before we started recording, is created by a woman and stars really powerful female characters. And so I'm excited to get your perspective on that a little bit as well today. Yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I've been listening to the podcast, as you mentioned, and you guys did a great job of talking about it, but I'm also very excited to bring my take on some of the things, especially because it's a a female-led show. So that part is very exciting to me, and I'm excited to talk about it. Definitely. So am I. Okay, so here's the premise for today's show. We split the show into two parts. In part one, we're going to talk about the parts of the season that worked for us. Each of us picked one thing from season one that absolutely worked for us. We enjoyed it and we want more of in future seasons. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to talk about the things that maybe didn't work or uh, were underutilized or there was some more potential there, something we'd maybe want course corrected in future seasons. And again, we all picked one thing. So let's start going down our list. Casey, kick it off for us. What did you pick that absolutely worked for you in this first season? All right. I know this is a little bit of a cop-out because the show is called The Witcher, but genuinely, I think a thing that really worked for me was Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia, The Witcher himself. Um, I think for this for this show to work, you need to have a lot of faith in the lead, and you need to have a really strong person in there that can guide, guide the ship since you're spending so much time with this person. So I really thought that they uh, they really hit the nail on the head with uh, casting Henry Cavill in that role and uh, his performance overall was really good for me. So actually, that's what that's what I'm wondering. Did you like his performance? Because I know on some of our episodes, Brett and I talked about how we felt, at least in early episodes, Henry Cavill came off as sort of stale and one note. Yeah. So I I mean, I agree with you in uh, in the early episodes. I think it's really easy for Geralt to come off as gruff and stiff. And I think that's Part of part of the character a little bit as we're getting to know him in the show, he is kind of emotionless. And I know you guys talked about this a lot throughout your series. Uh, he, as a witcher, is understood to not really have emotions or that's the perception from people in the world just as they know the witcher. 
But I think uh, Geralt has internalized that a little bit and kind of plays into that at some points. But the more time we spend with him, we see real growth throughout the season from him. And we see these little moments where we get a lot more from him than just this gruff, stiff performance. And I think that's a credit to Cavill's acting and to the way the show is written. I was going to say, I'm glad you brought up the change, especially from the first ep- from the pilot. And when I originally watched the pilot, I loved it because it was the first episode. It was amazing. And again, me and Abu were even biased towards that because we were watching it a month before everybody. But when I look back on it now, I actually don't really like the pilot compared to what the show became. And the main reason was Geralt or Henry Cavill as Geralt was this stereotypical lone wolf, lone wanderer, gruff, emotionless like that. And to me, that is what everybody generally thinks that a witcher is like and what maybe most witchers are, but that's really not kind of what Geralt would become. And so it was good to kind of see that at first and then you get out to where, and it's even as you mentioned there, when they're in the bath preparing for the banquet at Sintra, Yaskier's like, oh yeah, yeah, you never get involved, except that you do. And Geralt kind of turns around like, oh damn, he just (laughs) called me out right there. And so you get that towards it. And again, from the last episode, when Geralt is meeting with Vicenna, his mother, you see Henry Cavill showing that emotion. Uh, And I'm not, there's no spoilers in this sense, though, but from the books and everything, Geralt is not this emotionless witcher. Like, that's the point. He tries to say it as this little protection against himself, but he is emotional as hell. And even as a baby, especially in his relationship with Yennefer at times. Yeah, Casey, I love that you said that he internalizes that, you know, like the world perceives witchers as these emotionless, heartless monster hunters, you know, they're here to serve a job and they have to be, this is cheesy to say, but they have to sort of become the monster to hunt the monster, right? And multiple times throughout the season, we see Geralt and Henry Cavill internalize that idea, like I have to be the monster. One of my favorite scenes from, I believe it was... Episode five, maybe episode four is when he's fighting the Striga and he bites it. He just bites it. And then the Striga bites him too. And it's this very cool like mirror image of like, oh, okay, the monster bit him. He bit the monster back. And it's this idea that as witchers, they sort of do have to internalize and accept that their life is going to be, their life is going to involve a lot of pain and suffering and bloodshed. And it's hard to come to terms with that unless you sort of put emotions aside. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up episode four too, because in in my mind as a show only watcher, I felt like episode four with, you know, the, the banquet, we got, we got a lot of insight in that episode into what Geralt's really about his interactions with Calanthe at that table. I think you, we got a sense of what, what he cares about, what is important to him, his sense of right and wrong, things he'll do and what he won't do. And um, I think another part of Geralt's character that I thought was particularly interesting was that he's made to be an outsider from the very beginning. He's He is this other, which is a huge, a huge theme throughout the entire show. But his otherness makes him an excellent vehicle for um, giving us a perspective on other characters who maybe have been made to be an outsider in some ways too, or are an outsider and aren't seen aren't seen that way. And I think in that way he and Calanthe 
their interactions were particularly charged to me with that understanding of we're here, we're at, we have a seat at this table, but we're different than these people for a multitude of reasons. And I thought scenes like that where you're bouncing Geralt's, Geralt's character off of these other characters who are maybe on the outside looking in were some of the strongest parts of the show. And I don't think if Geralt was anything but, you know, a little bit quiet or grumbly, maybe not wearing his heart on his sleeve, we wouldn't get those moments if he was forthright with all of his emotions. And because he withholds a little bit, he and these other characters can draw draw bits of each other out into the open where we can see them as the viewer. And I think that that process throughout the entire series was really interesting and kept me, it kept me coming back every episode because those were the moments that had a huge impact for me. Definitely. Disenfranchisement and the idea, just like you said, of otherness, of being an outsider, of not belonging anywhere, that's a central, central theme to both Geralt's character and to the show at large, right? Time and time again, we visit characters and experience events where people are pushed to the fringes of society, to the outside. The elves in episode two, who are living in literal caves because they've lost a war against humanity. Uh, Calanthe herself is a woman in power, two things that make her an extreme outsider, particularly in the heavily patriarchal society of the Witcher. And I think that that nuance is is really key to the show's success. And um, I think, especially for me, pairing Geralt with all these female characters in this in this process where they're revealing things about themselves, I think he is kind of the perfect straight man to these other to these other characters that we're getting to know throughout the show. And he understands them on a different level that maybe a, like a human man couldn't because of his position in the world. And I think we see Geralt exploring that about himself throughout the season too. You know, we learned from him early on that he's come up with a way to live with the humans. He's finding, he's found a niche for himself where he can provide a service to them and be a value to them, but also keep himself safe in that way too. He's he's carved out a way to protect himself and to to be valued in some ways, even though there is this prejudice. And I think that is a theme for all of all of these people and creatures that are considered other in this world, learning where you fit in a system that's not designed for you to succeed. And yeah, you see that in the absolutely. women, you see that in the elves, you see that in all all of these species that you're talking about. And I thought that was really powerful that in all these ways, Geralt, along with other characters, they're all just trying to figure that out at the same time. Yeah, Geralt is the modern day millennial. He's got to find a, <laughs> he's got to figure out a way to survive and yeah. <laughs> exist in a system that is set up for him to fail. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I like how it's juxtaposed where... You have someone like Geralt who, oh, he's an outsider, he's all that. He's also superhuman in the sense of he's not like that pissant peasant, you know, slopping around in the muck and the mud. He's not like the halfling, which that Sintrin noblewoman was basically treating, essentially like a slave in that sense. And the same thing, though, with like Calanthe. I'm not feeling, and again, Abu knows this, I'm not feeling sorry for Calanthe in the sense of, okay, yeah, you're a woman in a man's world. You're also the goddamn queen and, (laughs) you know, despotic ruler of it. So, like, sorry, you're not on the same with those other people. 
But and that's what I liked about how they didn't go into too much into it really in the show. But that's what was fun about Geralt and her kind of getting together, where they're kind of saying like, "Oh, we might be alike," and Geralt's just like, "I'm not like any of y'all. Like, th- I don't care about y'all. I'm not doing any of this." And then he, of course, you know, "Oh, I'm gonna stay out of this. Oh, wait, somebody's in trouble. I have to get into it." In that sense, and he realizes what Calanthe's other ulterior motives are. But stepping ste- stepping out of the show a little bit. Casey, I've noticed a couple other notes you have here in our (laughs) outline. Uh, One in particular is about Henry Cavill himself and his own obsession with the world of The Witcher. Yeah, I I noticed this after I had watched the show through for the first time. And, you know, um, going online to look at other facets of the show and The Witcher Witcher world, um, in some cases to make sense of the timeline, which I know will get at later but i stumbled across so many interviews that cavill did in uh relation to the show or during press for the show and he clearly loves the witcher and the source material so much and he's such a fan i i didn't know this about him but he seems to be really into fantasy as a genre and is pretty vocal about it and it it comes off It's very clear watching those interviews that he is just obsessed with this world. And I think, not speaking for fans of uh, the other source material of The Witcher, but it's got to be reassuring for everyone to know that he is so on board with this series and really cares about Geralt as a character and is excited to be involved in this because I think that care comes across really clearly throughout the series. And I think he handles... Geralt with a lot of sensitivity and I think he could come across as just a grumbly kind of character if he's not given that kind of sensitive handling and I know any actor could do this but I think it's also really powerful to see him get excited about the fight scenes that they did or certain story elements that they included and he he is very much involved in the whole world beyond just Geralt and I think that's really cool to see. It's become a meme now. His like geek <laughs> fandom has become a meme, which is the status I aspire to. I mean, it's really, I don't know if this is rumor. Again, it's hard to separate meme from reality at this point when it comes to like, oh, Henry Cavill is a huge geek. But I think there's a story that's been floating around, uh, and this was maybe before the show even came out, that Henry Cavill is such a big geek that he missed a show audition a couple of years ago because he was busy raiding in World of Warcraft. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. And again, somebody please fact check me on that. But that is he that has like turned him honestly into like the king of Reddit. Like Witcher the Witcher Reddit and Witcher fandoms, like deep, deep fandoms online that can often become very toxic and hateful still love Henry Cavill just because he's so into the Witcher. He is as much a fan as we are. You know, yeah, and just to go off of that, more hot geeks. I want more hot geeks like Henry more Cavill in the world. <laughs> I I love that he's he's not hiding this part of his personality. That he <laughs> he's very upfront about it, and that just leads right into my other point about Henry Cavill playing Geralt that I am absolutely obsessed with. He's smoking hot, and I think we need yeah, a really undeniably. hot Geralt. And like, there are moments in the show he has his shirt off and he's just jacked, and I'm like, oh, that's right. <laughs> This is this is what I came for. I would be lying if I didn't say that part of the reason that I turned on the show for the first time was the picture of hot Henry Cavill 
jacked with basically like the blonde legless wig, I was like, yeah, I'm in. I want I want to watch this show. And of course, there are other things like I, I'm a I'm a fantasy fan in general. So like there are other things about the show that brought me in. But like I said, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't a reason that I pressed play in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Casey, don't walk back on that. You do you do not have to justify your thirst. No, I don't and think I also anyone think, has to uh, justify their thirst for Henry Cavill. He no. is looking good in this show. No, and my my only critique about that is like we need more of it. There's a lot of tits in this show, <laughs> and I'm just saying like no one's gonna be mad if there's a, there's a little more Geralt nudity in the upcoming season. So not to be too horny about it, but <laughs> I was gonna say, are you are you calling for more dong in the show? I think, you know, Game of Thrones kind of broached that, but like, I think yeah. if you're going to have a show that is about <laughs> female empowerment and treating tra- treating males and females equally, I'm always about more dong, you know? They yeah. don't do it enough in TV, and I, I don't know if Netflix will allow it, but I'm always pro-dong. <laughs> I've become obsessed with that, just the term hang dong. <laughs> like, they need a hang dong in the show. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, that is the best like saying I've ever heard. <laughs> that actually transitions us very nicely into Brett's pick. Brett, you totally copped out on this answer. We were all supposed to pick <laughs> one thing that worked for us in the first season, and you just wrote, the show worked for me. <laughs> no, I put the show itself. <laughs> the but show like itself. I told, like, like I told y'all, what the hell else are we going to talk, what am I going to talk about that I haven't already picked on there? <laughs> So, true, and true. again, a big reason I threw this wide net out here was to really get Casey's views on it as well. Because again, Abu, I love working with you. I love doing all this. But by God, we've talked about everything. By God. So, this is mainly it. So, I pretty much had on here literally the show itself. And the first thing I have is, it was an impossible task to please everyone. And I think they pulled it off. Not pleasing everyone. They were never going to please everyone. And there's a lot of things to criticize this show about. But I really do not understand criticizing like the overall dialogue or criticizing the way the show looks. And so to me, it was the aesthetic of the show. The biggest thing is when you have like a fantasy novel series is how does the world feel? Does it feel lived into what happened from the source material? In this case, it's the books. It's not the games. And I felt it from the beginning, from the pilot all the way through. I really felt like this was the continent because, again, there's no name of the world they're in. It's just literally called the continent. Maybe they'll name it in the show. But it felt like everything that I had gotten from the books. When they were in, they never really got to, like, Vizima. They kind of were there, but then they went underground with the Striga and all that. But from the, from the first episode from Rind to Blaviken, um, then even to Brokolon, which was, you know, the forest, it felt lived in, and it felt like the world of The Witcher as I imagined it. So they pulled that off for me. So let's talk about expectations, actually, because you and I had expectations going into the show. Casey, I'm curious. I'm sure you had some expectations, too, right? Like, yeah. we sort of have to address the Game of Thrones elephant in the room. I was just going to say, I think <laughs> I think a, a thing that this show did was see see the need for a new fantasy show in the market and and tried to fill it and i think a thing that they did that was really smart they didn't try to replicate game of thrones in in you know and there's some similarities and there's story beats that are very similar but that's true to all fantasy i think i think the ways that they diverged from the game of thrones formula 
was actually what kept me going because I um I don't think they were ever going to pull off a Game of Thrones level uh show in the same manner that Game of Thrones did. I think to do an exact replica of that would not that wouldn't succeed. I think people people liked Game of Thrones, but I think also people think they want the same thing and then they don't. Right. And did you was there anything in the show that was totally unexpected for you? Like you came in and you were like, okay, Henry Cavill's hot, it's fantasy. I'm gonna see some cool shit go down. Looks like there's a cool fight scene. Was there something in the show where you were like, wow, I was not expecting that? I mean, I think uh, we're going to talk about this more later, but I thought Yennefer's whole storyline was uh, not something I expected to care about so much or not something I expected to see at all. And I think the more the show progressed, the more I felt the the lean towards it being a, a pretty feminist show in some ways. You know, it it definitely has a female lens to it. And it feels like it's saying some important things about feminine power and about female female power and the role females play in society. So I think that took me by surprise a little bit. I didn't expect to have such a um, complex portrayal of the female experience in a show like this. So uh, that certainly, especially on a second watch of the show, stuck out to me as a thing that I didn't expect to get from it. But I also think uh, the fight scenes... I didn't expect such cool fight scenes from a Netflix show, yeah, honestly. Uh, and I thought some of the, um, just some of the, like the epic battle of Sodden at the end was something really cool. I, I think you always expect cool fights in a fantasy series, but I think this one exceeded expectations in that way a little bit for me. Yeah, we're in agreement on that. And I think what's interesting is Yen's storyline, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Yen's storyline was something that I wasn't expecting either because it's not in the books, you know, it's like a total <laughs> show edition. And it was a completely new part of the story that was hinted at quite a bit in the books. And you could connect all the dots and basically get Yen's origin story. But it was a totally new experience to to see it on screen. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Brett, you also had down in this section that you liked how the stories were adapted from the books. So let's, let's talk about your expectations a little bit. What were you expecting going into the show and then how the show actually adapted them? What I was expecting, I tried not to. I wasn't, like, I'm not a gatekeeper in that sense of like, oh, they got to do this. Oh, they got to do this. Or I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. Anything like that. But what it was, was they're trying, and this is where I put this in because this is where my writing nerddom comes in where they're having to basically condense everything down. They're having to condense a reading medium into a visual medium and then take potentially 120 pages and put that into about 20 because the short story might be half of an episode. It might just be Geralt's a story from that episode and not even including Yen or series or anything else in there. But the adaptation, the adaptations, I thought were great. The uh, the banquet, Pavetta's betrothal, I thought was very well. And even though her and her outburst and Dunny, even though that was a little different from the books, it wasn't just like, oh my god, that's terrible. It was it was perfectly fine. They pulled it off. It looked great. And same thing with Borch and all that. Again, very different how they did it. Nothing stuck with me as being unnecessary. I might have said something might have been in the episode recap that we've done but now nothing's really staying with me to be like oh that that was really weird or, oh that was terrible until we get to what we didn't like <laughs> yeah no i totally agree looking back at the season at large 
I'm actually quite impressed at how well those short stories were adapted. Okay, let's move on to uh, my pick for the thing that worked for me this season. And I think it's something we've already hinted at and are sort of bursting at the seams to talk about. I especially loved Yen's story in this season. It was completely unexpected for me. Like I said earlier, as a book reader, as a player of the video games, I know who Yen is. I have been introduced to her character time and time again. I know the nuances of her character. And even having all of that knowledge, I was blown away by what I learned about Yen in the show. A lot of Yen's storyline here is hinted at in the novels and never quite fleshed out. And the show just went full steam ahead, gave us Yen's entire backstory. We saw her origin. We saw the trauma that she went through. And we start to understand a lot of her motivations and a lot of a lot of her character traits sort of fall in place. When you look at it through the lens of her childhood and her early years at Eratusa and her abuse that she underwent, a lot of who Yennefer becomes as an adult and a lot of her relationship with Geralt really suddenly starts to click in place and it starts to make sense. So the Yen, Yen origin story to me was spectacular and truly the heart of this season. It really is incredible to me that they, they didn't really dive into that in the novels and games. Yeah. Um, as a show only fan of The Witcher, it was it was one of my favorite things about the first three episodes of the show is seeing that whole backstory and really learning about who she was as a character and seeing very early on her her faults and her strengths and her weaknesses were very clear from those first three. And I, I think you only care about the second half of the season with her if you see all that lead up. So I was... I mean, it's kind of interesting that they didn't get into it more in the source material, but I'm really glad that they did it in the show. And it gave us a good overview of Eratusa, which, again, for someone who has no clue what's going on in the Witcher world, otherwise, it was really important to learn about the mechanics of what Eratusa is and the function it plays in the world. I have a theory why this wasn't explored in the books or the games, <laughs> mainly the books, because it was a boomer male writing it and writing about the Witcher. And while he does stuff with uh, a lot of stuff with Siri. Yen, again, is a, is much bigger in the show than she is in the books. Like, she's obviously major in the books, but she is front and center, I would say. She's not in the pilot, but from the second episode on, she's about front and center, where you could argue that maybe it, she might not be the lead, per se, but it could be 1A and 1B, where she's up oh, there with her. absolutely, yeah. I was, I was just going to say, I think... That's kind of, for me, it, I appreciate even more having a female showrunner for this show for that reason, because maybe, like you, you hinted at, it was a dude that created the other uh, elements that we have of the Witcher universe outside of the show. But to know that there is a female kind of helming the whole story and giving us more of these moments from the female characters, I think it was really smart because those are the characters we end up caring about the most, I would argue. Especially Yen, I think we get really attached to her. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, and say it now. I think the actress playing Yen is doing so much throughout the whole series. Anya Chalatra is is just crushing it the whole series. And crushing in it. those in those uh, those two episodes at the beginning of the season, playing this vulnerable person and this kind of fragile, abused woman 
And then seeing the end of the season where she ends up and how all of that carries with her, I, I think she she just absolutely nails it. And it's one of my favorite performances of the whole series throughout. I think she's she's doing a lot of work and it, it makes the show so much better for it. I agree with you that Anya Chilotra did a lot of heavy lifting with Yen this season, and I'm excited to see where she takes it for future seasons. But casting choices overall, and I think this was a note I had later on too, but casting choices for this show, spectacular. I think everyone took their character and ran with it. I think um, you you kind of were hinting at this, like that the episode of Yen's transformation. Um, I I heard you guys talk about this on the show before, but I think for Yen's Yen's whole storyline for me is kind of it's this really complex discussion about female power that I they hint I hinted at this before but her storyline specifically we see a woman who's sacrificing the most the most stereotypical sense of what it means to be a woman to get her power you see her interacting with that decision so much through the whole series and as much as it's an element of the fantasy components of the show of it, like this is how you get your, this is, this is how you make your transformation and you get power through doing this. It's a very applicable story to the real, the real world female experience. I think feeling like you have to sacrifice a part of what makes you a woman sacrificing maybe your feminine power to get places in the world. And it was a very, uh, maybe on the nose metaphor for real life, but I was impressed to see that they took Yen's storyline and really tried to grapple with some of those things. It's a, it's a really complex thing to try to explore in a single character, but I think they did a really artful job of doing that throughout the season. And I can't wait to see more of it. Totally agreed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, but stick around. We'll be right back. We'll get back to your podcast on Witchers and Ghouls in just a minute. But before we do that, we would like to take you on a little trip to a galaxy far, far away. Right, Connor? Right, Jaden. On our series, we'll be jumping into the most memorable stories from the Star Wars video games, exploring their connections to the wider canon, and just generally fanboying around. We'll be tackling all the really deep questions, such as... How does a Wookiee find love? If an Ewok trips and falls in the forest, but no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? What are those tentacles on top of a Twi'lek's head used for? All that and more on the Star Wars series right here on Lore Party. Look for us on the Lore Party feed by searching for Star Wars. Thank you so much for listening, and may the Force be with you. So let's actually transition to the second half of our episode and talk about the things that we felt maybe didn't work as well for us this season. And Casey, you're already talking about the timeline, so let's get into it. You you felt that the timeline you felt that the timeline didn't work super well for this season. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, so it's kind of hard to figure out where to start with this. I I do want to preface it all by saying I'm certainly not one to balk at an unconventional narrative chronology. I think when it's done well in the service of a larger theme or plot or certain payoffs, it can be an extremely powerful tool in the arsenal of storytelling. But I don't know if we're meant to just see her meeting up with Geralt as the primary event that we've been leading up to all season. 
Um, I'm not sure how effective that was for me because I do feel like we just kind of watched Siri walk around in a forest for most of the, the season. <laughs> and I personally feel like you could have fast forwarded through a lot of those scenes and it wouldn't have mattered. And it's it's kind of unfortunate to feel that way because I think there's a lot of strengths in um, certain elements of messing with the timeline, but that was a huge weakness for me. And just in terms of, um, because I have no prior knowledge of the Witcher universe, the first three episodes were rough <laughs> in terms of figuring yeah, out the well, timeline. I, I was going to ask, is your critique of the timeline prim- primarily that you think it was a, a bad story choice or that it actually made it confusing for you to follow? No, I, I think I understand why story-wise they were doing the things they were doing. And I think whether or not leading up to Geralt and Ciri reuniting, I, th- I think we'll have to wait and see what the other seasons hold. Since I have no other knowledge of what happens in the story, I have to assume that that payoff will will be worth it in the coming season. But in terms of just starting this starting a new fantasy series it was so much trying to figure out okay what is a witcher <laughs> what are what are these sorceresses doing what are when is all of this happening in a in terms of what year is it happening let alone what timeline it's in because eventually we get three timelines what are the rules of the magic of this world what are the species that are involved I think what is what is the aging like for these different species? It was it was just so much information to try to take in. And I think Brett in particular, you mentioned this throughout the podcast, but it's nearly impossible if you don't have the subtitles on to get all of that. Um in the first three episodes specifically. Like I think by the end of the third episode, you pretty much know when these things are happening. But I think especially starting with the the fall of Sintra, kind of like you just are kind of dropped into this and being like, okay, so I guess this is where we're starting, but is it where we're starting? I think it just takes too long to figure out that these things are happening at different times because for someone like me, having no prior knowledge of these characters, you just, you don't know what the rules are to orient yourself, I think is my my main issue with it. I th- I still think, and this is just kind of to defend the Lauren Histress, the showrunner, more than anything, but probably not. It might have been the pilot that sold it. But with the pilot, it was, we need all of these things in it, and they need the full frontal gratuitous female nudity, which they got <laughs> in that Garden of, uh, the type of Garden of Eden scene with Stregobor. They needed the one-on-one showing that Geralt is the badass of badasses, and that was the fight with Renfri's band, and then against Renfri herself. And then they also needed the epic sweeping battle scene that we got with the Battle of Marnadol where Ice, you know, took one in the eye from Kyre, apparently. And I think <laughs> they just needed that all in there. And so maybe that is the catalyst that kind of got off in, if we're going to do all that, oh, maybe we can do this really weird timeline thing. Because I know she is on the record for saying the goal was the third episode. You're supposed to realize it and put it all together. So I don't think people are supposed to feel bad that they didn't get it until the third episode. She was saying that was the goal. And this isn't a shot at anybody. But I do think it was a risk in giving a lot of credit to the viewer to pick up on that. But maybe a lot of people, and again, when I first watched that first episode, it was 11 o'clock at night. 
I had been up since six in the morning, you know, had taught a whole day, coached two basketball games, did all that. And a lot of that went by me. And on my rewatches is when I turn the subtitles on, as you mentioned. And then you start to realize, oh, I don't remember them saying that, even though they said it plain as day. It's just so much gets lost. And especially in that pilot episode with Renfrey and Geralt talking, the two, three different times, just them one-on-one, they give you all of this information that you can piece it together. But like you said, if you're not looking for it, it can easily go over your head. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily hate it. And I don't think it's confusing beyond comprehension, but it definitely requires a little bit more brain power than maybe I expected from a Netflix show. And, um, right. It's more house of cards and less the circle, you know, like one (laughs) you can just have on in the background and the other one, you kind of have to pay attention to what's going on, which is kind of, I don't know. I think it, it, um, subverts your expectations a little bit when it's a show that's also like here's some gratuitous full frontal nudity at first and there's some breaking the fourth wall and there's jokes and it's kind of it it goes back and forth between some silly monster stuff but then also requiring you to really really just like pay close attention in order to keep up with the timeline at the at the first half of the season yeah i generally agree with both of you i think i think i understand the story constraints that the showrunners had with trying to get the characters front and center, but realizing that so many of these short stories and so many of the events that these characters go through literally happen decades apart and trying to figure out a cohesive way of telling that. And like you said, Casey, I totally agree that it 100% worked when they created a thematic connection. So Striga transformation versus Yen transformation and juxtaposing those. I think that is where the timeline split was used effectively and was a positive for the show. It really worked. I think where it didn't work was, again, like you said, Siri plotline just sort of meandered, but it almost felt like the show was like, hey, don't don't forget about Siri. Like she's also important. Like let's let's right. go check in with Siri. Like what's she up to today? You know, and not to mention uh Jaskier didn't age at all. He didn't right? age. <laughs> like they like I think there's a line where Yen alludes to him having crow's feet or something and I'm like where? <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't see them. His hair is exactly the same as last episode. I don't Okay, so Abu, you're the one that has really kept up not to put you on the spot here <laughs> with the official timeline of Netflix. Do you know what he should be or what it is? The official timeline that the TV show's Twitter account account tweeted, says that episode two, Geralt and Yaskier are abducted by the elves. This is presumably in the show where they first meet, different in the books, but in the show, the two meet there in episode two. And according to this timeline, it happens sometime before the year 1249. And then episode seven happens at 1263. So we're talking like, that's like 12 years there, right? If I'm doing my, Mm -hmm. my math correct. Yeah. So... Based off of this, episode two happens, it seems like probably five or six years before 1249, and then episode seven happens at 1263. So that's like a 20-year time window, yeah. in theory. Yeah, so that's like a 20-year time window that Yaskier doesn't change. <laughs> <laughs> See, and this is the thing, like, Yaskier is, uh, he's a he's a human, right? And yes, 100% think, flesh and blood human. So it's 
it's just confusing to me because that was one opportunity that could have cleared some things up for me. Yeah, that that would have contextualized for show only watchers that sorcerers and witchers age differently than humans do. Right. If we right. saw and I think, if we saw Yaskier change in age. Right. That's and I think that's what I was missing. He's just got a is, great skincare routine. Right. Except still crow's feet, according to the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I don't I don't know. Just don't know what to think about that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of thoughts on the timeline for sure, but you know, we'll see what season two has to hold and if what Lauren Hisrick says is something they'll follow through with, then it seems like now that the timelines have converged, we are going to get a bit more of a traditional, straightforward plot timeline show. So we'll see where it goes from there. But it has been the probably the number one criticism against the show, at least critically. Um, speaking of season two, Nilfgaard is also something that we will probably get a lot more of in upcoming seasons. And Brett, this was your pick for the thing in season one that maybe didn't work for you. Yeah, and I'm not going to talk much about it. Uh, I've said my piece already on it, and I don't <laughs> want to talk too much about what I didn't like about the series anyway, because, like I said, we've covered it in that sense. But Nilfgaard as religious fanatics, like all of them, not just a certain character, that just, it didn't really work, probably because it wasn't really expounded upon. And I don't know what they're going to do differently in that. Maybe they'll do more about it. And then also, like Kyer, who, again by no means is that my favorite character from the book or anything like that. <laughs> but his he's very different. Uh, Frangilla's very different. Certain things they've done is just, it's very different, which is fine. But it just didn't work for me in that sense of what they're doing. And so just Nilfgaard as a whole just was kind of blank to me. Like as it happened, I'm like, what are they doing? Where are they going? And it just didn't work. Casey, I'm interested. You don't know that anything was different in the show. What What was your read on Nilfgaard? Because, Brett, you're right. There hasn't been much exploration or explanation of who and what Nilfgaard is. I think for me, Brett, you, you're kind of, you kind of hit on the criticism I have of Nilfgaard is that I think there's like a lot of throwaway lines throughout most of the season that like Nilfgaard's kind of looked down upon or seen as kind of like this this backwater kind of I don't know is it a, is it a kingdom what are we calling it well see and again to hit on that also you're right that Calantha is making them out to be this backwater thing and a massive change is and it's something that she has said in regards to the armor controversy is right now they refer to Nilfgaard as a kingdom they're a kingdom where in the books they're already an empire and they're pretty powerful as it is but to where she wanted it to be they're starting out in season one as this, ah, who gives a shit about Nilfgaard? What are they going to do? And even Yen made a thing, uh, a reference to it in The Bounds of Reason, which I'll keep calling it by the short story, a rare species, there you go, about like, Nilfgaard's a joke. And they're like, no, 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 they're coming up. Look what they're doing. And then obviously when they invade and they take over Sintra, it's to show that, oh, they're becoming this powerful empire and this force under the new emperor that they have. And so I think that's another change that they're also doing as well to show in the next season that, oh, they're actually like this big, powerful empire. But you're right, it, it was confusing. That was nothing confusing to me was, oh, they're making Nilfgaard a joke, which is weird. Right, and I think as a viewer who doesn't have any other knowledge of it, you know, it's kind of just like this amorphous 
amorphous thing that is kind of talked about as like a a distant place. They just keep referencing it. And then it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's like legit a problem. So do you wish you had gotten more explanation of who Nilfgaard is or were, were you content with what you got so far and you're happy to wait and see what happens next? I think it depends. I'll have to I'll have to see how season two handles it because it sounds like there's a lot of backstory and context to Nilfgaard that wasn't included in season one that's going to be important later. And if they're going to give that to us in season two in some way, then it might not matter. But I think with it being as crucial as it is to the story coming up, I do wish a little bit that they had maybe given us some more of that as um as more than just kind of this amorphous kingdom that's going to be a threat later and then all of a sudden it, it is a threat a very real threat in the last episode so i don't know i think i'll i'll just have to wait and see and i i think i'm okay i think i'm okay with that for now um but it did feel like the the details of who exactly nilfgaard is those details were skated over a little bit and if that was intentional because they're going to show it to us later then maybe that's okay but it it could have been fleshed out a little bit more for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. To be fair, we waited six goddamn seasons to learn about the White Walkers. So, you know, I think we can Did wait Did we a ever bit. really learn about the White Walkers, though, Abu? <laughs> that's the real that, that's question. That's for a different pod, Casey. That's for, yeah. <laughs> that's for our Game of Thrones discussion. Um, <laughs> did you have any other final things you wanted to hit on for Nilfgaard, Brett? Nope. <laughs> He's over Nilfgaard. <laughs> Doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Nilfgaard's dead to him. Done and done. <laughs> done and done. All right, let's move on yeah, to- Let wa- me get to what I really want to talk about, Brokalon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to talk about this too. So this was my pick for the thing that just didn't work for me this season. Again, if you have listened to the podcast till now, you have heard at least six episodes of me bitching about this, so I won't get into this too much. But uh, just to reiterate some of my views on Brokilon, I feel like this part of the show was, this part of the show could and probably should have been cut or extremely shortened if they were going to make these types of changes to Brokilon. The book is pretty drastically different in Brokilon. And again, we've discussed this on previous episodes. Brokilon is where Siri and Geralt first meet. We learn a bit more about the Dryads. There's a bit of an adventure that takes place in Brokilon. It's something that probably deserved an entire episode to itself. And what we got was just quick cuts to Siri and Dara in Brokilon, drinking the waters a bit and learning that Siri has a special power and is not affected by the waters. Again, similar things happen in the books too. So it's not like they're totally diverging. What didn't work for me was... The fact that this completely killed the pace of any episode that it was in. I think we visited Brokilon for two or three episodes this season. And every time we cut back, I was like, I don't want to be here. Take me back to Yen. Take <laughs> me back to Geralt. Like, we're, the, nothing is progressing here. Uh, we're just learning small bits about the world. It's like, it's more of a world building exercise than an actual story taking place. Um, Beyond that, I think I wish we had learned a bit more about the Dryads because, again, Brett, you spoke about the elves earlier. The Dryads are also another species in the world that has been subjugated, defeated, pushed to the brink of society by humanity. It fits into this theme again of otherness and finding a place in a world that isn't built for you. The Dryads are 
on the brink of extinction and living in Brokilon, and they are now extremely hostile to anyone and anything that enters their, their forest. And I just don't think we got a sense of that in the show. It would have fit thematically with so many other parts of the show. Yeah, I think going off of that for someone who has, again, no other knowledge of, you know, the dryads or Brokilon or the lore that surrounds them that we would be maybe learning about. I think the fact that they were such pace killers, these scenes in Brokilon, <laughs> did a huge disservice to that backstory then. Because I, for one, I mean, when I was rewatching a second time, I it took everything in me not to fast forward through some of those scenes because I was just like, there's nothing, there's nothing happening in here for me. Like the, the world building is so important, but it can't be, it can't be so dry and so slow compared to what's happening in the rest of the story. So I just, um, I, I would agree with you that it's a weakness of the show and uh, a real disservice to Brokilon. See, but that's where the problem to me or this is the problem with an adaptation, because I remember when Dara was cast, and it pretty much being like, oh, it's going to be somebody with Siri. I'm like, well, that's a show creation. And it's because everything that ha- just about everything that happens with Yen and just about everything that happens with Siri is show created, because none of that is in the books. It's just we meet up with them, and then they give their own backstory. So the whole point is, once Siri escapes from Kyra, she's on her own. And we don't know what all happens in there. And so they decided to show us it and just because it's TV. She couldn't be wandering alone or she'd be talking out loud. And it's like, you can't do that for television. And so the problem with that became Siri did change. And from when she first escaped, she was confused on what the hell is going on. These people are all after me. Why? I'm this scared little girl. And seeing the persecution of that halfling by the Sintra noblewoman, talking to Dara and him saying, your mother and her people slaughtered our people. Like they smashed babies and laughed and they did all of this. And she sees this completely different world that she was raised in or completely different world from what she was raised in. And it changes her. And even by the end when Dara's like, I can't do this anymore. You're on your own. And she's like, I am tired of apologizing. I'm going to move on. I'm sick of this also. And then she goes on and she sees her quote unquote friends from Citra and they attack her and she goes into her little trance and ends up killing them. So by the end, she is completely different, but I think we all agree on that it just didn't work. It killed any kind of pacing of the show. And the worst thing I can say about it is it was boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate to agree with that, but. It like I said, as a as a person who's just learning about this world for the first time, if any of that backstory is important later, I'm gonna have to rewatch it <laughs> because mentally I was pretty checked out in some of those scenes, just waiting for them to be over because it was so dry. So yeah. and that, uh, that's really enlightening because I remember Brett, you and I, when you and I first talked about Brokilon, I started to question myself. I was like, okay, maybe because of my book bias, because of my knowledge coming into the show, I dislike Brokilon just because I, I wanted there to be more, or I see some of the wasted potential here. But Casey, it's like totally eye-opening to hear you have like the same <laughs> exact opinion of Brokilon that we do. You know, For show-only watchers, it was potentially just as dry and boring as it was for us. Right, and I, I think... <laughs> Going back to the like that timeline discussion, 
once you see where Siri ends up at the end of the season, you find yourself questioning, well, why did we spend all that time here <laughs> anyways? Like, what did what did we learn that was relevant to what's happening right now? And the answer is not much. Yeah. That there's no payoff for learning all that about them, really. There's no connection to things that are happening in the season we're currently watching that that we need, that that we're learning from spending that time in Brokelon other than just giving Siri something to do. And I, I think like our brains kind of catch on to that. You know, if they're giving us that much credit to figure out the timeline in the first place, they need to know that we're going to call bullshit on there being superfluous information and a plot line that we don't need. Yeah. So I think uh, I, I think it was really it was a really a downer <laughs> on an otherwise pretty good season of TV. Right, right. Well, let's actually wrap up because I don't want to end on a downer note. Uh, those are definitely <laughs> things that didn't work for us, but I'd love to wrap up our episode today and our great discussion with the UKC today about just sort of our big picture thoughts, our thoughts about the season as a whole and what we're excited to see next. Uh, Casey, what did you think as a show only watcher? Honestly, I, I had a great time watching it. <laughs> I For all of the things that I was nitpicking at, I I watched the whole season in a couple of days when I first started it and I found myself not being able to turn it off. And it wasn't just because Henry Cavill was hot, but that was part of it. And um, More it wasn't just right, right. It wasn't just for tits and dragons like some other shows. <laughs> but like, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think, in spite of all those flaws, I think there was enough. There was enough keeping me there that I'm definitely looking forward to season two and seeing how the show grows. I think a first season of anything is really hard to nail. Oh yeah, especially. A good pilot. There's only point me to a show that has a truly good pilot. I think you could maybe name five of them, but it's really you're hard pressed to find a show that that starts off as strong as it finishes uh, in a season. I think it takes a few episodes, and as you mentioned, there's there's reasons why they have to put certain things in a first season of a show so that they can ensure that there will be more seasons of a show. So I think despite all of those obstacles, I I appreciated the characters. I appreciated the journey that we got taken on and um for a fantasy show i thought it took it took some risks you know like they they weren't afraid to show some you know i keep going back to it but the hedgehog thing like they're not afraid to to get a little bit into like in almost into the ridiculous or showing some of the magical elements that are maybe hard to to bring the viewer into without them laughing at it a little bit but then for me, part of the show's strength is that it didn't take itself too seriously. I think it was fully aware of what it was. It wasn't trying to be Game of Thrones, like I mentioned. And I think that's really important. I think they knew the show they were making going in and everyone seemed to be on the same page with that. So overall, I thought it was a great first season. Yeah, I agree on a lot of those points. Brett, what about you? All right, so I've held off on this a lot, but I think it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that'll wake you all up. No, I thought it I thought it was great. It was about everything that I imagined. I mean, but I was always going to like it. I'm not one of the like I said, I'm not one of the gatekeepers. I'm not one of the people coming in going like, "Oh, it better be this. It better be this. Oh, I'm going to hate it." Like clearly some people are. And I liked that it did not try to be Game of Thrones because it is not a song of ice and fire. It is not that at all. There is barely anything that you can relate it to, except that it's a fantasy medieval setting. And Game of Thrones is fantasy light. I mean, you can look from the TV show from the first season, you can look at a Game of Thrones, the first novel, 
there's literally no magic in it until the very end when the dragons pop up, like the literal ending of the book and the ending of the show. This is magic. This is about magicians. This is about sorceresses, sorcerers. This is about a cursed hedgehog <laughs> showing up to claim a princess. This is about the Ard kiss that a lot of people didn't like, Habu. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But it's stuff like that where it's cheesy. And I, going back to the criticism I had earlier where someone's saying like, oh, this is like a, a story of the week, the monster show, the Xena and all that. That's what I liked about it. So I think this is one where... People don't like fantasy like this, and they were never going to like it, and for some reason they reviewed it, and they got to criticize it. Or people came in thinking, oh, this is going to be Game of Thrones. Oh, this isn't Game of Thrones. I'm going to criticize it. And it's not that at all. As you said, there, it doesn't take itself seriously. The books are even more absurd than the show, and I hope they really delve into that aspect of it as well. I will say I agree that just looking at the Battle of Sodden Hill... And looking at much of the production value in this first season, something that I tried to keep in mind the entire time I watched the show was this is season one. And if the show is renewed, which it has been renewed for a season two, the budget's going to get bigger. This is the smallest the budget it's ever been. And just realizing how much they did with whatever shoestring budget I'm sure they had for a season one, even if it is Netflix, that doesn't mean they were given a blank check like some other shows may have been given for season I think eight. it was like <laughs> 80 million. So it was a good amount. Yeah. And again, they, they really pushed that 80 million to, yeah. it, you know, they pushed it as far as they could. And I think that really showed in the TV show. I'm curious how much of that was just Henry Cavill's paycheck, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was actually going to say knowing knowing what actors get paid um I thought the the actors that they did get the like you have Henry Cavill who's obviously A-list and like this huge celebrity but then you have a lot of these other actors who like I've never I've never seen before I'm I'm not familiar with any of their their f- full filmographies or anything but I I thought they got some really excellent talent in to play these characters. And I know you talked about casting as being a really strong choice of boo, but I just couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. I thought we got some fantastic performances from everyone in this season. And it's really good to see that out of relatively unknown people when you're cramming celebrities into a lot of shows just for the name recognition. The fact that we're getting that without really cashing in the celebrity card too much, I think is really, it bodes well for the rest of the, the, the series. Yeah. I think he also undercut himself by how much he wanted the job to the point of where he borderline like was harassing her, <laughs> like bothering her about getting it. And she, she's on the record again saying she didn't want him at first. She was like, no, I don't want him. Probably too big a name is Superman. Like you don't want Superman coming in as Geralt and all that. And eventually it wore her down, wore her down to where he got in front of her. And then obviously she realized Oh, this is great. And obviously Netflix was like, yeah, um, if we can get Henry Cavill, he's going to be Gary. Right. <laughs> like, sorry, we're probably going to go over. But hit on that again. This is the She's a first-time showrunner. So this is the first time she's ever ran a show. So now she has all that experience to build on. So again, everything should get crisper, cleaner, better. It's just the, the bar is so high that if season two... It's almost like it has to be almost disappointment now 
because <laughs> it's been raised so high. I don't I don't know if I agree with that, but I I definitely think that you know, the bar is the bar is at a comfortable place for me and I think that they can at least match it in a second season. Um I think uh uh this is maybe the hottest take I've had the entire time I've been on here today, but <laughs> I think this is a much better performance from Henry Cavill than Superman was. So I think uh I think it's been it's been good all around. Uh I think it's good for him to kind of shake off that that Superman aura that he has and I think we're seeing a little bit more personality from him. And um, I think I think it's really it's really cool to see that to see that side of him and to get a little bit of a twist on his career. That's not just playing Superman, who I think is m- much more boring than Geralt. Honestly. <laughs> I have I have never seen any of the Superman movies nor any DC movies other than the uh, Wonder Woman. You are you're not missing anything. I don't yeah, think I am. I haven't seen that many not. of the uh, Marvel movies either. So yeah, I think I'll be missing a couple of things there, but. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'll be fine. <laughs> Trust me, if, I'll be if, fine. If you say so, Brett. Yeah, I actually lean more towards Casey's opinion about where the bar is at right now. I don't think it's so high that it's insurmountable for season two to do better. I think there. No, I'm not trying to of, say that. I'm just saying it's just really, really high. It is, yeah, it is high. But I think there's a lot of areas where they can and should improve, uh, particularly in the areas of shirtless Henry Cavill and the amount of dongs on screen. I think the bar is quite yes. low for that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's plenty of room for, for hanging dong. <laughs> if you take nothing away um, from this episode, think, it is that. Right. It's like very pro dong here on Wind's Um I I also uh the fact that the timeline thing shouldn't be an issue in season two automatically puts it at a higher bar for me. You know, I think that'll write itself a little bit. But that being said, the timeline was kind of an interesting wrinkle on an otherwise maybe it was an interesting wrinkle in a show that could have lived up to just some normal fantasy expectations. So I'm excited to see what the wrinkle is in season two or how it sets its, sets itself apart from things that are maybe just expected. Definitely. Well, hey, Casey, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Honestly, talking to you has been enlightening. You know, Brett and, Brett and I get stuck in this echo chamber back and forth where he's, he says something and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. And then I say something and he's like, no, you're kind of wrong. And we, just get, we get into this echo chamber and it's really nice to like burst our bubble a bit and get your perspective as a show only watcher. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's um, it's fun to finally be here talking with you guys uh, after after listening to the two of you bicker like a married couple occasionally. <laughs> it's like it's nice to it's nice to be here and just add some different perspective. And there are t- certainly times where I'm like, oh wait, I I want you to talk about this. So it's um, it's been really fun to talk with you guys, and it's good to get all my feelings on this show out because there's not much of an outlet for it <laughs> for me otherwise. So it's um, it's great to have that conversation and to talk about a show that I really liked. So thanks for having me. Of course. And Brett, to be clear, I'm never going to back down on the Ard kiss. That is the sodden hill I am going to die on. So, (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been waiting to make that joke? All episode. (laughs) Well, Brett, podcasts are podcasts. Lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the path.